Throughout 2018, CTSI Discovery Radio brought you stories of research and discoveries through translational science each month, including a look at the past, present, and future of precision medicine. Precision medicine is the promise of bringing all the knowledge that we have gathered today to the service of healthcare delivery. Medical breakthroughs and innovations through team science. Today, we were sharing a success story, first in the world, first in human clinical trial in Milwaukee. The therapeutic responsiveness has been excellent. The idea that we are already at a significant level of benefit in our earliest patients is very promising. We can get some very good long-term outcomes in terms of their ability to stay cancer-free, but also their quality of life. And encouraging stories of positive and successful outcomes. Within a few days, there was no detectable cancer. Let that sink in. Within a few days, I was in remission and feeling better. It's remarkable that I'm still here, and it's incredible that I am where I am today. We'll revisit all of this and more inside this special 2018 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We kicked off our 2018 shows back in January, beginning with a look at an organization that's helping prepare pre- and post-doctoral scholars for working in industry, since research shows that less than 25% of them will receive tenure-track positions in academia. Enter Postdoc Industry Consultants, or PICO, an organization facilitating collaborations between pre- and postdocs and industry. Dr. Julie Tetzloff is Associate Dean for Postdoctoral Affairs and Graduate Career Development and Faculty Advisor for PICO. She told us that the need for PICO is vital in helping postdoctoral fellows gain critical industry workplace experience. Increasingly, graduate students and postdocs want a career in industry, but they don't have the experience to get it. So by joining PICO, they can get a business experience as well as education to make them more marketable for the jobs they want. The companies where PICO members are placed to provide their consultative services benefit greatly too. All of our PICO consultants are exceptional scientists. So they get the scientific training and they get a scientist who can ask questions and think through the answers. And I think that's critical. To learn more about PICO, listeners can email us directly at pico at mcw.edu. Our February show explored the past, present, and future of precision medicine, which today gives researchers more tools than ever for understanding the genetic factors of human disease and provides the foundation for new ways of diagnosing, treating, and preventing diseases through treatment custom tailored to the individual. 
We heard from Dr. Raul Urrutia, director of the Medical College of Wisconsin's Genomic Sciences and Precision Medicine Center, who told us how he became involved by sharing a story that solidified his belief in and dedication to precision medicine. So a kid showing up on the consult and had a large hundreds and hundreds of seizures a day. And that kid was sequenced and we were able to find the cause of that disease. And for me, it was exactly what I have always been looking for. I believed in science to give us the knowledge that we don't have and to see that science was able to do that. It was a remarkable, remarkable experience. In fact, that day many years ago, it transformed my thoughts from just being a pure scientist looking for truth to a complete dedication to the service of those individuals that this new field of precision medicine is the only one that can touch them. And he gave us an idea of what our healthcare will look like going forward through precision medicine and team science. It's obvious Dr. Rutia is excited about precision medicine and not just its future. I'm talking a lot about the future, but I want to tell you something. The great news we're practicing precision medicine today here in Milwaukee, here at MCW. In March, we took you inside a news conference where a collaboration of doctors and researchers from the Medical College of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, and Blood Center of Wisconsin told us how they successfully treated a Wisconsin man with lymphoma utilizing dual-targeted CAR T-cell therapy. Dr. Parmeswanhari shared the exciting news of this medical breakthrough. Today, we were sharing a success story with a personalized approach and a first in the world, first in human clinical trial using a type of technology called CAR T-cell for the first time in Milwaukee. And he told us how CAR T-cell therapy works. The process of taking a patient's own T-cells, which are a part of your immune system, and converting those T-cells into very highly selective, targeted assassins of cancer. So using gene modification of these T-cells taken from the patient and in the lab outside, we modify those T-cells to be highly targeted killers of cancer cells. Dr. Narav Shah, principal investigator of the clinical trial, said CAR T-cell therapy is an evolving process, but the success he and his team are discovering with their unique approach could be taking the science forward. While the therapies have worked for many people with refractory cancers, they have not worked for all patients. So here at the Medical College, we are hoping to advance on the science of CAR T-cell technology by targeting more than one cancer cell molecule. So the CAR T-cell clinical trial targets two molecules, and we think that this might be more effective for patients with certain types of blood cancers. And so far, it is working. A few months ago, we enrolled our first patient. He has had a long ongoing battle with mantle cell lymphoma, which is a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma for which these therapies are very promising. He had previously received two bone marrow transplants, and despite this and other therapies for mantle cell, he continued to have disease at the time when this clinical trial was available. And then we heard from the patient himself, a man named Brett from Appleton, Wisconsin, who's the first participant in the landmark dual-targeted CAR T-cell clinical trial. As Dr. Shaw mentioned, Brett battled mantle cell lymphoma, a type of cancer that affects the white blood cells of our body's immune system. It's been a long road. It's been almost seven years since I was diagnosed with incurable form of cancer. There was like, you know, a little handbook on lymphoma at the time. Here you go, and here's the different types, and you know, it comes right out. Mental cell, incurable. 
Like, okay, that's not good. You know, it just added to the upset of being diagnosed in the first place. Despite some setbacks, Brett became healthy enough to have the CAR T-cell therapy. The treatment was fast and effective. And once I got the cells reinfused, within a few days, the crisis was over. There was no detectable cancer. I was in remission. Let that sink in. Within a few days, I was in remission and feeling better. Leading to the question seemingly everyone now is asking him. So am I cured? I think that's the answer everybody wants. Only time will tell. But that would make a great story. Hear Brett's incredible story by checking out episode number 47. You'll find the podcast on our CTSI website or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our April show focused on autism spectrum disorder, specifically among teens and young adults, and their increased risk for mental health conditions like anxiety, depression, even suicide due to their social isolation. Dr. Amy Vaughn Van Hecke is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and the director of the Marquette Autism Clinic at Marquette University, who's done extensive research into autism spectrum disorder and risk factors associated with autism, especially among teens and young adults. She says that even for average developing young men and women, entering into these life stages presents challenges. Anybody that knows teenagers knows they're a hot mess. I was very curious in brain development and brain plasticity, and I wanted to look at times in life when that was really possible, when the brain was really malleable. And those times are toddlerhood and adolescence. Those are our key points where the brain is reorganizing itself. Now imagine facing these biological and social changes during adolescence and having autism spectrum disorder on top of it. You're grappling with both of those things. You're grappling with all the hormonal cascade, the brain change, everything else is adolescence, and the increased demands for you to rely on your peers, and you have autism, it's particularly challenging for you. First of all, you may not have the friends to rely on or the skills to have those friends. You may not have the communication to say what's happening with you and how you're feeling. You know, that presents a particularly delicate and risky time for our kids on the spectrum. And anxiety or depression on top of autism can significantly and negatively impact an individual's social outcomes. Unfortunately, we don't see people achieving their full potential. They're underemployed, they're often not living independently, and severe isolation continuing. And in fact, I think it gets worse, because when you're out of school, it's kind of like a drop off the cliff. We have a lot of young adults sit and hang out in their parents' basement all day and rarely have contact with other people. But Dr. Van Hecke says we can all make a difference in the life of a teen or young adult with autism by being kind, by being empathetic, and by being a friend. Our society is not well in terms of our empathy towards each other and our kindness, so I think we need to really think think about as a society, like what are we modeling as the adults of modeling inclusion and empathy and show that everyone has value and everyone has a place. Oftentimes, when patients undergo surgical procedures, they're administered an anticoagulant to prevent the formation of or to break down existing blood clots. While blood clots can create serious, even deadly health risks, in May, we learned how heparin, one of the most commonly used anticoagulants, can itself pose risks as well. We heard from Dr. Anand Padmadaban, Medical Director, Transfusion Medicine, and Associate Investigator at Blood Center of Wisconsin, and a leading researcher in a condition known as HIT. 
Although heparin is generally considered safe, as with any drug, there can be risks. The more severe or more worrisome side effect of heparin really is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia has a commonly used acronym called HIT. In HIT, what happens is there is a drop in the platelet count that's pretty significant. There are two varieties, the less serious type 1 HIT. Type 1 HIT is a temporary phenomenon where there's a small but significant drop in platelet count. There's an immediate rebound in the playlist count back to baseline levels, and there's really no permanent consequence of that drop. And the very serious, potentially deadly, type 2 hit. Type 2 hit, which is the hit that's really serious, you have a significant drop in the playlist count, and that is the form of hit that is associated with these dangerous clots. What if you're prescribed heparin as part of your medical treatment? Should you be concerned? Heparin is a great drug. It's one of the most useful drugs we have. It's exceptionally affordable and it's a very effective drug. But any drug has side effects. I would say listeners shouldn't be overly concerned, but should be aware that this potentially dangerous side effect can occur with heparin. At some point in life, we're all likely to become injured somehow doing something. But while some injuries are minor, others have far more serious consequences, ranging from temporary impairment to permanent disability and, in severe cases, resulting in death. Our June show focused on injury control and prevention science when we heard from Dr. Stephen Hargarten, Chair and Professor of Emergency Medicine and Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Hargarten shared with us how he and his team are reframing how we view and treat injury. I want to reframe it to, it's a disease. It has elements of disease that we know. Diseases have been defined back in the 1800s, largely helping us with our understanding of biological agents. In this case, this is physical agents, kinetic energy, chemical energy, and that causes harm and death. And framing it as a disease pulls in campuses like the Medical College of Wisconsin and two level one trauma centers, and that's the way we're framing it to reinvigorate the science of injury prevention and control. Why is the concept of recognizing and treating injury as disease so essential in medical practice? Think about what doctors do. We treat diseases. So if it's not considered a disease or it's dismissed as a public health issue, then it's somebody else's problem. And the healthcare systems that take care of injured patients can be reinvigorated to improve the care of the injured patient because it is a disease. And he's confident that the Comprehensive Injury Center is indeed advancing injury prevention and control science for the 21st century. We want to advance the sciences to improve patient care, strengthen education of students and doctors, conduct research, and we want to engage the community. We're advancing our science to address this disease burden, just like we've been doing for cancer, cardiovascular disorders. There's no other center like this in the Midwest that we're aware of. That's exciting because for the 21st century, we got a problem. We got to get this right. In July, we learned about a devastating muscular disease that afflicts children from birth and a worldwide collaboration of doctors seeing encouraging results from an effective gene therapy they've developed to treat it. Dr. Michael Lawler is associate professor and a member of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's also a key member of a worldwide collaboration focused on fighting a condition known as X-linked myotubular myopathy. 
commonly referred to as XLMTM. X-linked myotubular myopathy is a severe congenital muscle disease that affects children born with the absence of a protein called myotubularin, important for the appropriate building of muscle to begin with so it can contract and the relaying of signals that the muscle needs to contract. Without the essential myotubularin protein, these babies are born very weak, very floppy, and they're very severely affected. So children born with XLMTM face a lifetime of severe physical challenges. The vast majority of these patients, I'd say well over 90%, are very severely impaired. I mean, I've met three patients ever with myotubularin mutations that are capable of walking. I've met many, many more than three. Making the life expectancy of a child born with the disease not very promising. About half of them die of their disease, even with supportive measures in about the first 12 to 18 months of life. So it's very uncommon for these kids to get out of their teens. And it's relatively uncommon for many of them to get to their teens. While the outcome appears bleak, Dr. Lawler and the international research team he's part of have developed a targeted gene therapy that's producing successful results, first in animal models. The canine studies were really important. These weren't dogs that were engineered with myotubular myopathy. These were dogs that happened to be born with myotubular myopathy that we were then able to identify as a resource for treatment testing. The key thing that made the dog work necessary, though, was there needed to be a larger animal model test before anybody was going to be comfortable moving forward in humans. Which, in fact, is where his team's research is today. And the results so far? The therapeutic responsiveness has been excellent. Children that have been treated have been highly responsive to the treatment. They've gained motor milestones, significant function. Some of them are off of ventilatory support at this point. They're able to communicate with their parents in a way that they never have been able to before. Where I have seen the results, they've been highly promising. What is Dr. Lawler most excited about from these early results in testing the therapy in humans? The fact that it seems to be doing something even at our lowest dosing, the idea that we are already at a significant level of benefit in our earliest patients is very promising, and we hope that things will continue to get better. In the past, patients diagnosed with advanced forms of many abdominal cancers had virtually no treatment options available. But in August, we learned about an emerging procedure for certain abdominal cancers that's proving to be successful in giving back patients both quantity and quality of life. Dr. Harvesh Mogul is an oncology surgeon, assistant professor, and program director for regional therapies at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin, who helped us learn about the emergence of the procedure known as HIPEC, an acronym that stands for... It stands for Heated Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy. So it's a form of treatment we use surgically to treat patients with cancer of the abdomen that is spread to the lining of the abdomen or the peritoneum. HIPEC is a two-stage process. First stage is called cytoreductive surgery. This stage involves me going inside of the abdomen and I attempt to remove every bit of visible disease and once I'm able to surgically remove all the disease to the point where I can't see any obvious visible disease then the abdomen is treated with the HIPEC. Dr. Mogul described this second stage of treatment. During this part, we put special catheters or tubes within the abdomen and connect them to a pump. 
and that pump circulates and heats uh, chemotherapy. And the hope is the chemotherapy will take care of any of the cancer cells that I wasn't able to see. With the availability of HIPEC today, many abdominal cancer patients are regaining quantity and quality of life. But even with its success, should HIPEC be considered a cure for abdominal cancers? Always wary of using the term cure. There are a few patients who don't see their cancers come back. But by and large, we talk about patients being cancer-free rather than completely cured. We also heard from Tracy, who just a couple of years ago was diagnosed with a stage 4 abdominal cancer. I got the phone call that I had appendix cancer, and I just thought, I'm going to die. I was scared out of my mind. I think anybody that's diagnosed with cancer is going to be scared. I could start crying right now. I mean, I remember that day clearly. And today, following HIPEC treatment with Dr. Mogul. I got my third CAT scan result today and I'm clear. You know, I have no cancer right now as of today. Tracy summed up her HIPEC experience with three words. Remarkable, impressive, and incredible. Remarkable that I'm still here. Impressive that the technology is out there to be able to help people like me. And it's incredible that I am where I am today. You can learn more about HIPEC and hear Tracy's remarkable story by checking out episode number 52 of our show. In September, we discovered a multi-institutional, multidisciplinary research study hoping to provide better outcomes in addressing significant disparities in African-American male prostate cancer. Dr. Melinda Stolle is Associate Director for Cancer Prevention and Control and Professor, Department of Medicine, at Fredericton the Medical College of Wisconsin and Principal Investigator of the study known as Men Moving Forward. African-American men have two to three times the risk for prostate cancer as white men. And mortality rate is 47.2 versus about 20, black versus white men. The disparities for African-American men with prostate cancer go beyond the incidence and mortality rates. Prior to getting diagnosed, there are disparities in screening. So that's a concern. And once men are diagnosed, there are access to treatment issues, clearance to survivorship, which is where my research interests lie. Leveraging the success of an earlier program she developed for breast cancer, survivors, she and her research team have launched a program called Men Moving Forward, a lifestyle program for African-American prostate cancer survivors, counseling around healthy eating and exercise, but also an opportunity for social support. The study hopes to discover if adopting a healthier lifestyle can help provide better outcomes for African-American prostate cancer survivors. Do these lifestyle programs change your body composition? And if they do, then what is the cascade of responses from that. What's happening inside their bodies and how might that inform future programming? Dr. Paula Papanek is director of the Program of Exercise Science in the Department of Physical Therapy at Marquette University and a key member of Dr. Stolle's research team. She said one of the biggest targets of this body composition study, belly fat. Belly fat is associated with an increased risk for almost every disease we know. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and cancer. 
all forms of cancer, for women, breast cancer, and for men, prostate cancer. And she added the study utilizes nutritional and exercise guidelines proven to positively impact outcomes. The data for the benefits of physical activity and cancer are compelling. That's the reason why the study has been funded. Other studies have shown how powerful physical activity and exercise can be. And so the purpose of men moving forward is to change your life in a way that's meaningful and positive. While there are many biological factors that can affect a child's brain development and growth, there's now research suggesting that environmental factors, such as growing up in poverty, can also be linked to childhood brain development, potentially impacting the trajectory of lifelong health, education, and other outcomes. Our October show focused on research by Dr. Fabrice Jodorand, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities and Director of the Graduate Program in Bioethics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. We explored his findings relative to the neuroscience of poverty. It's really to study how the brain interacts with the environment in the sense that I live in a particular area of a city will affect my brain. If I'm always confronted to violence, this will affect my brain. If I live in a peaceful environment, this will also affect my brain positively. He told us that child brain development is neither 100% biological nor 100% environmental. Poverty will affect brain structure, will affect the behavior of children, will affect academic achievement. The cause can be biological, can be environmental. All these factors will impact the development of the brain of children the biology proper, but also the environmental factors that affect the biology. But in order to improve health and education outcomes for children affected by the neuroscience of poverty, we must first improve their overall quality of life. If we want to improve the health of these children, it is important that we also economically develop these regions affected by poverty. It's again, nurture nature. And he said we all can be and must be part of the solution. Everybody should be part of the solution. So it's up to us as member of our community to participate in this movement. Last month, we wrapped up our year of shows by exploring the work of Ellen Galinsky, a research scientist who discovered that kids today are losing their passion for learning. So based on her research findings, she developed what she calls the seven essential life skills every child needs. Ellen first shared these essential life skills in a book she wrote titled Mind in the Making. And now, in partnership with the Bezos Family Foundation, Mind in the Making is a program designed to share the science of children's learning with parents, professionals who work with children and families, and the general public. We heard from Ellen Galinsky herself, and she shared what those seven essential life skills are that every child needs, beginning with the first skill, focus and self-control. Focus and self-control are the core executive function skills, and that's why I put it as number one. Ellen's second essential life skill, perspective taking. Perspective taking means understanding your own thoughts and then understanding that other people might have different thoughts and feelings. The third essential life skill, communicating. That means being able to articulate in whatever form what it is you want and need. The fourth skill, making connections. Making connections underlies symbolic representation that underlies literacy, that underlies science and other forms of knowledge. Fifth, 
is critical thinking. Critical thinking involves problem solving, reflecting on what it is you know, and then figuring out what's real information. The sixth essential life skill, taking on challenges. Who will try that next hard thing? We need to help children try something hard and figure out how you can do it. The seventh and perhaps the most important essential life skill is self-directed, engaged learning. It means we are setting goals, we're setting strategies to achieve those goals. Those of us who have goals and try to achieve them are likely to do better. It's Ellen Galinsky's hope that Mind in the Making gets kids motivated to learn and to keep learning throughout life. I started this out because I was worried that too many kids were dropping out of learning. And if you ask kids why they go to school, fewer than 40% said to learn. So we've got a societal problem. We need people who are ongoing learners. By the way, it's not too late to teach your kids or yourself these essential life skills. It really is never too late. These skills are very malleable. They're teachable. We can learn them, whether we're in our 60s or whether we're little babies. Learn more about Mind in the Making by listening to episode number 55. You'll find the podcast of this show and all of our shows on our CTSI website or wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts. But now we've reached the end of this special 2018 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. We thank all of our interview guests that have appeared on our show throughout the year. And now, we especially want to thank you for supporting CTSI Discovery Radio throughout 2018 and beyond. I hope you've discovered something by listening to each of this year's shows. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us in 2019 as we bring you another year of interesting shows covering the latest in translational science discoveries and successful outcomes. CTSI Discovery Radio will continue to air the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you warm, safe holidays and a happy, healthy New Year. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.